chapter 15 is at minimum one of the most famous, if not the most famous chapters in our entire Bible. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But here's the issue with that. If we just jump straight into those parables, we'll actually miss the entire purpose of Luke chapter 15. Because the entire thing is centered around what happens in verses 1 and 2. And so I want to spend a significant amount of time right here at the start talking about the craziness of what happens in verse 1 and 2. And so here we go. First one, we're just going to jump in. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This is one of those verses that gets completely lost without the cultural context um, of the text. And there's something I want to clear up here. And I want to clear up what images come to your mind when you think of a tax collector. Okay? If you grew up in church, you may have been told that at, at some point in your life that a tax collector is someone who stole money from the Jews. I don't know if you've ever heard that. They stole money from the Jews. While, yes, that's true, it's actually much deeper and darker than that, what a tax collector is. And I think what we have done is we have minimized the true disgust of a tax collector, like the evil that is a tax collector. And we've grouped tax collectors as a little thief, right, who just needed a little push from Jesus. For example, Zacchaeus, just a little bit later in Luke 19, Zacchaeus' story is interesting, right? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree and he said what? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. You know, you know that song. Um, if you haven't heard that, that's a children's song that's about Zacchaeus, and the popular understanding of why tax collectors were hated, for example, Zacchaeus, um, was because they stole money from the Jews. And the reality is he was given permission to gather taxes for, for Rome from his fellow Jews. And it's kind of like this, like, okay, I'm going to take $30 from you, and I'm going to give it to Rome, but then I'm also going to take 20 extra dollars and pocket that for myself. And so at minimum, he overtaxes you, and we don't like those people, right? At minimum, he overtaxes you, and at most... He is a thief. That is the simple, popular understanding of a tax collector. Now, what we need to understand to grasp what just happened in verse 1 is that that's not even scratching the surface. The truth is, it goes way beyond him just being a thief. During this time in history, Rome rules the earth. Right? In fact, the Roman government stretches all the way from India to England. If you can picture that, India to England. That is a massive piece of land. It's a huge empire. And thousands of years later, we have rom like romanticized the idea of Rome. We think of Russell, Russell Crowe and Gladiator are the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. But the evil that was Rome gets lost on us. They were a ruthless empire that slaughtered thousands of men, women, and children. There are historical accounts of entire cities being wiped out by the Romans because the people in that town would not worship Caesar, a statue of Caesar, as God. They would wipe them out. And they would line those people up on the road so that other travelers could see, hey, don't mess with us. They were a ruthless, violent, pagan, and evil empire. Now, 
Here's a question. If you are a government with a landmass from England to India and you are determined to shut down anyone who opposes you or threatens you, how do you police and sustain that? You don't have an air force or drones to keep watch. What do you need? You need a massive, massive army. A massive army. Now, how do you fund, supply, feed, and train a massive army? Taxes. You need taxes. So think about this. In the first century, tax collectors were Jews who paid, not just given permission, paid for the right to gather taxes from their brothers and sisters. According to historical accounts, 85 to 90% of a household income would go to Rome in taxes. And keep in mind, this Jewish man like Zacchaeus or Matthew, these men stand on the shoulders of people like Abraham, Moses, Isaac, David, and on and on and on. They are called to be a light to the nations, called by God as the people of God. And for a Jewish man to purchase the right to tax their own people so that an invading government could continue to oppress their own people, it's evil. It's wrong. There's not a modern-day equivalent to communicate to you how bad this is. It would be like if a foreign country invaded America and successfully overthrew us, and they did it violently, okay? And your neighbor decided that they are going to join that foreign country by taking money from you and your family and giving it to that opposing force so that they could continue to oppress us. And not diplomatically, like with kindness, but ruthless. And they would wipe out cities like Belton and Rogers. And so you would be contributing to the, to the wiping out of fellow Americans, your brothers and sisters, people you know, would you be okay with your neighbor doing that? No, you wouldn't. So do you see why when Zacchaeus is embraced by Jesus, the crowd grumbles? You would too. But here's what happens. They are the first group that is embraced by Jesus. Jesus embraces them. So there's the tax collectors. And then we see a second group. They're called the sinners. Luke identifies them as sinners. In our Americanized Western culture, um, don't think of sinner like we talk about sinners. Like, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, and that's correct. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But this description of a sinner here is not an, acknowledge, not an acknowledgement that Jesus is embracing people like you or I, but it was a category of people who the culture saw as the chief among sinners. It was a completely socio, different socioeconomic class. These are people born with some kind of illness or disease, like the bleeding woman or blind man or someone with leprosy. And so these are people that have been ostracized by society, put in a different class, and labeled sinners. You are not part of this. You are not part of us. You belong to something completely different. A sinner could also be a Jewish person who simply decided they don't want to follow the law of God. And so they're going to pick a career, a profession, or some kind of habit that doesn't align with the religious expectations of the day. So this could be a slave trader, a prostitute, or, or something that just the culture saw as disgusting and evil. And so they are put into this different class. And so let me read verse 1 again. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
where the true gospel is, even the tax collectors will come. Notice that there's no ministry strategy here. It just happens. And here's what I want you to hear before we go into the parables. There is just something about Jesus. There is just something about him and his gospel that is just better than anything else. And the tax collectors and sinners, they see it, they smell it, and they draw near to it. And it's no different with us. When the people of God smell like the gospel, the sinners will draw near. You ever drove by uh, Miller's Barbecue at lunchtime in downtown Belton? If you haven't, just do it for your joy and pleasure. Um, but you could have just eaten a large Domino's pizza, and then you drive by Miller's, and you smell that brisket, and you're like, man, I am home, right? Glory, glory, hallelujah. It just smells good, and it draws you in. And I want to be clear here. At Renewal Church, we want to be a church that proclaims the gospel to the sinner, that embraces the sinner. And there are hundreds of books written by human men and women who have given us advice on how we should best do that. Some advice is really good, some is just awful. But at the end of the day, if the overwhelming aroma of the church is the gospel of Jesus, then we won't have to search to find the sinner. God will find them and draw them near. In a young church like ours, we're, we're only a year and a half old. We're babies. But a young church like ours has to make sure that we do not lose the smell of the gospel and begin to smell like something else. We have to be very careful because throughout church history, there have been several strategies on how to best reach the sinner, right? And still today, you can find churches that fit into one or two camps or some kind of variation of it. There's one philosophy that says, you know, we are the holy people of God. And since we are holy, we need to stay holy. And in order to do that, we have to seclude ourselves from a sinning world as much as we can. Those churches tend to look more like country clubs than they do the gathering of the people of God. And if a sinner wants to come to that church, then the expectation of the people of God is that that person cleans themselves up before they come to a gathering. And when and if that person does come, then the people of that church question why they are even there. And that sinner is not embraced, but rather secluded as if the gospel is not for people like them. Now, they won't say that out loud, but when you look at the culture and the practice of that people, that's how they embrace people. They don't. And it moves from, he saved a wretch like me, to we deserve this grace. And people who look like us, that's one extreme. The other extreme says in order to reach sinners, we must immerse ourselves into the culture so that we are more approachable to the sinner. So we make ourselves look like them, we act like them, all in the hopes that one day they will trust us enough to actually talk about Jesus, right? I don't know if you've heard this before, but what's the problem with that? You don't smell like the gospel anymore. You smell like something different. You smell like something different. Different, And the reality is, sinners here in Scripture, in the Gospels, they draw near to him because there is something different about him. There is something better about him. That's just verse 1. Verse 2, the tax collectors and sinners aren't the only ones we meet here. We meet the Pharisees and the scribes. And what, are the, what is their response to what they're seeing play out? 
says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the Pharisees' statement about Jesus is more than just a statement. It's an indictment, okay? They're making accusations, and their indictment, they're, they're claiming that since he is communing with sinners, he himself is now lawless and unclean. They don't back it up with any scriptural, scripture. They just, it's a political hit job. And they want to turn the crowd against Jesus. So their accusation, follow it, is that since Jesus communes with sinners, he himself is now a sinner. Therefore, he is alienated from God, which is ironic because last time I checked, he was God. And so he's alienated from God. And whatever he says now is void. So don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. And Jesus, hearing them make this accusation, tells them three stories that illustrate his heart, the heart of God. Verse three, his first story. He told this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not, think about who he's saying this to, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that, the one that is lost until he finds it. Here's what he's doing, and it's fascinating. The Pharisees and the scribes believed that the heart of God, at the heart of God, was separation and ritual purity, okay? Separation and ritual purity. So in order to know God and be in good, in sta- in good standing with him, you have to follow his law perfectly. And to do that, you need to separate yourself from that socioeconomic class, the sinners and the tax collectors. So much so that if you are not, so if you're not ritually pure, there was no outreach for you. There was no initiatives to fix you. There was no compassion. It was a mindset of, well, that's just too bad for you. Oh, well. And Jesus steps in and he says, shame on you. God's heart is not just for the pure and set apart, but it's for the one who's lost. His heart is to repair and redeem what is broken, leaving the 99 and pursuing the one. The Pharisee would say, they got whatever they deserved. It's not my fault they're lost. At the very heart of God is a pursuit for the one who looks around and goes, how did I get here? What am I doing here? How do I get home? God goes and finds that sheep and says, I'll take you home. Verse 5, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, look at this, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You want to know why the Pharisees hated Jesus? It's because he said things like this. (laughs) I'm sure that they were gasped, spit at his feet when he said this. What he just said was that if one of these tax collectors repents, if one of these tax collectors repents, then God will rejoice more than all of your ritualistic purity. Jesus doesn't stop there. He presses into that idea even more. In verse 8, he says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So a, a coin, a silver coin, was a day's wages. And this woman is absolutely going nuts over this silver coin. It's my mom when she lost her earring. I remember it. 
I remember it. And I just like, why are you freaking out so much? She's getting pillows. I mean, she took everything in our living room and put it on the front yard. And I'm like, it's an earring. And she's like, it's my earring. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's frantically running around. This lady's got nine other coins. It's not like she's broke all of a sudden, but she's moving couches. And she does whatever she can do to find that coin. Verse 9, when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. She celebrates. And just in case the Pharisees misunderstood him the first time, he says this in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The religious leaders were not interested. Think about it. They were not interested in the repentance of sinners. They weren't. Those sinners are evil and they're worthless. They got what they deserved, and they should be judged. And Jesus is like, judge them. I'm seeking them. Don't you get it? And in case they didn't understand the first two times, he tells one more story. And this time he goes into even more detail. Verse 11, he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I want you to hear this. Following Jesus can be difficult at times because he will make you confront what is evil inside of you. That if you want to truly follow Jesus, you have to admit who you are that at your core are desires that are against his glory, that you have self-destructive tendencies inside of you, and the gospel forces us to come face-to-face with who we really are. And when you do that, when you come face-to-face with the reality that you have desires that are destructive, whether it's lust, bitterness, anger, the list can go on and on. But when you come face-to-face with that reality, and you decide that instead of surrendering all power and control to Jesus, you decide to run from him and choose your own destiny, do whatever you want to do, when you press into those desires, it will always feel like freedom at first. It will always feel like freedom at first. When you run from the purpose that you were created for, it will always feel like freedom. Think about it. This son... When he goes off, he's got what he's wanted, and he's running off to a far country. Do you think he's missing his father's house? No. He's free. He's free from his father's rules. He's free from his father's expectations. And I'm willing to bet that there are many of you who that's your story. You wanted to be free, and you thought that it was worth it. You thought that it was better. But it's the lie, because eventually the mask, has to, the mask has to come off, and you can't hide anymore. And you have to deal with your own self-destructive tendencies. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs and no one gave him anything. 
to refuse sonship to Jesus completely guarantees slavery to something else. This man refused to be a son. He had all the love of the father. He had the inheritance. He had everything that he thought he could ever want. And he thought that there was something else out there that was better. And now he finds himself a slave. He longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. To refuse sonship guarantees slavery to something else. And here's why. As a son or a daughter, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are promised that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and will produce for you the worship for God, the goodness, you will know the goodness, the grace, the power of God. And you no longer have to worry about, am I good enough? Because the Father has set his affection on you. You no longer have to prove anything. You don't have to search for the meaning of life. You don't. You don't have to go and find joy because you already have it. You already have it. It's true freedom. But to refuse your sonship will lead you to try to find joy and satisfaction anywhere else, whether it be drugs, alcohol, sports, that you immerse yourself into uh, how well an 18 to 24-year-old kid can throw a ball. And I'm guilty of this one. That's why I'm bringing it up. That's what pastors do, right? Like, I like sports. Like, look, in our Renewal Fantasy Football League, the crusty chupacabras are looking good, okay? Like, there's some promise there. But I have a tendency, and many of us in this room have a tendency to immerse ourselves into the life of how well an 18 to 24-year-old boy can throw a ball. Just the other day, all right, just the other day, I'm a huge Astros fan. I'm looking at Twitter, which was my first mistake. I'm looking at Twitter, and I see that um, Dusty Baker benched George Springer. Now, you don't know who those people are. They are, Dusty Baker's the manager for the Astros, and George Springer's the player. And he benched George Springer. The night before, George Springer had hit two home runs, and Dusty Baker benched him because he ran too much. And I'm like, he's a professional athlete. Why are you benching him? And I got fired up. I'm getting fired up about it right now. But I got fired up about it the other day, and I'm sitting there, and I'm telling Katie about Dusty Baker and George Springer and how awful they're like, what kind of manager is this? And I went into my office, and I started studying this sermon. And can I tell you this? Our desire to be a slave to this thing, to the things of this world, is easily achieved. Easily achieved. I just wasted 10, 15 minutes talking to my wife about George Springer and Dusty Baker. What a waste. And we could have been doing something, anything else. We are easily confused and misguided into slavery. So we have to be very careful. The amount of people that I know from my Christian ministry classes at Maryard and Baylor who are now slaves to their career, to money, and their marriages are a wreck. Guys that I knew that I prayed with and we sat with, but now they're slaves to this world because they think that it's better for them. It can happen to any of us. So we have to be watchful. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I love this. The son is literally practicing the speech that he's going to give his father. You know what we see here? We see true repentance. It's rejection to slavery. 
and surrendering to a better freedom. That's what we see here. The father's affection saying, I get it. This is what I was made for. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice that the father doesn't even acknowledge that statement. It's not like the father said, you know what? You did mess up. You are a bad kid, right? Get inside. No, he didn't do that. What did he say in verse 22? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. I think Greta said it best when she said, I'm home. To know and understand the significance to be in the presence of God, the joy of worship, the satisfaction of following Christ. Let's bring this back to verse 1 and 2. What do you think is happening in the crowds when Jesus is telling these stories, specifically this one? What do you think is going through the minds of the tax collectors, of the one who had leprosy and was ostracized by society, the prostitute, the slave trader? See, before it was just a sheep and a coin. That was children's stuff. But now this is a man who wasted what was given to him. And every cultural rule of the day said that this father should disown this son. But instead, the father embraces him. See, what I love about this is everyone wanted to put in this text, everyone wants to put Jesus in a box, right? And they want him to fit into that box that says, here's my worldview. Here's where I think the world should operate. Here's how I operate. And Jesus, I need you to fit into this box. For the Pharisee, it's if you don't look like me or act like me, then you don't deserve the love of God. And Jesus says, I don't fit into that box. For the sinner and the tax collector, it's someone like you could never love me. They've been persecuted and ostracized their entire life. No one's ever reached out to them. And Jesus says, I don't fit into that box either. And we still today, man, we, we have our little worldviews and we come to Jesus and we say, I want you to fit into this little box so that you can make me feel better about myself. And Jesus says, I don't fit into that box either. Jesus presses in even more in verse 25. He says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. I love that. He's far off. He hears music and dancing. I guess they're not Baptists. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out, and it says he entreated him. So the other son, son, he's out in the field, he's coming back, and he realized something's happening. Here's the music, here's the dancing, and this celebration is epic. The fatted calf, the wine is flowing, everyone's invited, and the older son goes in, embraces his brother, and just joins the celebration. That's not what happened? No. His brother's pouting outside, refusing to go in. And it says the father entreats him. That word entreat, it means to plead. And isn't that what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees here? Isn't that what he's doing? Jesus is pleading with the religious leaders. 
through every story. Please understand my heart. The sheep has been found. The coin has been found. The brother has come home. And here he's seeking the heart of the Pharisee, the older brother. Don't miss it. The gospel isn't just for those who are classified as sinners. Because here's what happens a lot of times is the the people of the church will look out at the outside world and they say, you don't deserve the love of God. You need to clean yourself up. But just as much, the sinners, the people of this world, or the church people even, will look at the religious people and will say they don't deserve the love of God. We get mad at them for being too religious, too legalistic. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? Just as he seeks the tax collector and sinner, he seeks the Pharisee. He's pleading with him. He's entreating. Join the celebration. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You ever said that? God, I've followed you for 20 years. Can't you just do this one thing for me? Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the younger brother refused sonship to be a slave to the pigs and to the world. The older brother refuses sonship to be a slave to entitlement. That if I just do this, and God will love me. If I just do this, if I serve him, he'll give me his stuff. That you know a lot about him, but you don't really know them. And Jesus here pursues both of them. He's pleading with the older brother. Join the celebration. In this celebration is the best of everything. The best food, the best wine, the best music. It has the greatest of joy. And the older brother wants to settle for a goat for him and his friends. He wants to settle for something less. His pride is his self-destruction. And it will be ours too if we're not careful. Verse 30, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, and he said to him, I want you to listen to this. He says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Here's what the older brother didn't understand. Everything that he thinks that his brother is getting over him, the younger brother that he thinks the younger brother gets this and I don't, the older brother has access to it as well. He has everything the younger brother has. He has everything at his fingertips, but he doesn't want it. He wants something less. Verse 30. Or sorry, verse 31. And he said to them, son, you are always with me, and that is all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay. Now, three things that we can learn from this text. Three ways that we can respond. I'm going to fly through these pretty quick. Um, The first thing that as you think about the parable of the coin, the sheep, and the prodigal son, the first thing I want you to remember is that at the heart of God is a relentless pursuit of both you and them. A relentless pursuit of both you and them. The story of the Bible is a story of running and chasing, that the people of God continually run from God, and God consistently and continually pursues them. He chases them. But here's the deal. Sometimes his means of pursuits can be difficult. Sometimes it's going to hurt before it heals. Here's why. When we run from God, when we run from God, there are two ways that he typically pursues us. The first way is that he will keep from us 
the very thing we're trying to run to, that thing that you want, a circumstance you want us to go to a specific way, a job, whatever it is, he's going to keep that from you until you realize that he's really the only thing that can satisfy you. The second way that he pursues you, which is actually much more terrifying, is the thing that you want to run to, he gives it to you. He gives it to you. And when you get that thing that you thought that you wanted, you realize that it's not as good as it thought it would be. That's what we see here with the younger son. He realizes that what he wants is empty. And in that moment, where does he turn to? His father and his father's servants. And they celebrate his return. And on this point, I want to do a little sidebar here because I want to mention something. As a shepherd here at Renewal, um, it's our responsibility, Matthew and I primarily, to pursue you. It's our responsibility as a sheep, as someone who belongs to this faith family, to pursue you. We don't want any lost sheep here. And if you do run away, we want to pursue you to bring you back into the family. And it's not just you and I, and I want to really hammer in on this. We're the ones that Scripture says is accountable for you. That's why we have membership here, because we are accountable for you. But at the heart of renewal, we want to be a people that pursues one another, and pursues the sinners of the world. And I've seen it, and I've seen the heart of so many people here. It's the same heart that our worship team has, that where they practice hours every week to prepare to lead us into worship. It's the heart that, and he's going to hate that I'm going to do this, but it's the heart that Danny Kirchmeyer has. This dude... When, we, when the shutdown happened, we, and there were so many people who wanted to stay home, who had the conviction that they should stay home, and they're still home today, this dude had the, the desire and the heart to say, they need to be a part of this gathering. And he figured out how to put together a live stream, hours and hours and hours. It's the same heart that made him and Joseph Hunter a few weeks ago go to Amy's attic on a Saturday, pull out all the, tr- the, the boxes in a trailer, and get two cords so that our members could be a part of the members meeting. That's the heart of God that says, no matter what the sacrifice, no matter what I have to do, I will pursue the sheep. I will ensure that they know they are loved, that they belong, and they are part of God's family. It's the heart of God. And if any point, if any point you feel like you're part of this family, but you're not pursued, or that you feel lost, first, we just have to say, look, we're sorry. We're not perfect. But I want you to believe in every part of your soul that we love you. We want you here. We want you a part of this faith family. We want to communicate the heart of God to you. We care about you. So that's the first thing. At the heart of God is a relentless pursuit of you. Here's the second thing. Your faith and growth in Christ will be a continual deconstruction and reconstruction of how you view yourself and God. Okay, deconstruction and reconstruction. That's what Jesus is doing in these stories. And it's what Jesus does all throughout the Gospels. There are two groups here, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees. And Jesus is deconstructing, breaking down how they view themselves and how they view God. And if you read the Gospels, this is what he does. Like how many times has he said, you have heard it said... But I say to you this, he's deconstructing one worldview and building up another that aligns with his heart in reconstruction. So with the tax collectors and sinners, 
He's deconstructing that their belief that they are unlovable and not worthy to be celebrated. These people are hated, excluded, and persecuted. And Jesus deconstructs their belief, and so many of you are here, that you are not worthy of Christ's love. He deconstructs that worldview, and in its place, he builds up something new. He, miss, he, he reconstructs their understanding of how God views them and how they should view God. Verse 5, when he found, talking about the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. How many of these people do you think had ever been rejoiced in? How many of these people do you think were celebrated? It says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. One of my favorite uh, verses is Luke 5, 12. A man with leprosy comes up to Jesus, and Jesus embraces him. It says, while he was in one of these cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Now, what's interesting about that statement is this guy believes that Jesus has the power to make him clean, but he's not sure if Jesus wants to. He believes that Jesus can do it, but he's not sure if Jesus wants to, and there's so many of us that are like that, that we believe that Jesus has the power to free us from our sin and our shame, but we're just not sure if you want to. And you hear people like me say, well, Jesus loves you. And you're like, yeah, I know. He's supposed to. But you're not sure if Jesus really likes you or wants you. And I love this story because it speaks to us, because the deal is you know you. Like you know the secrets you keep from us, and you know that he knows all things that we don't know about you, and you know that since he knows all things about you, that he probably doesn't like you because you don't like you. You don't like what you've become. Look at Luke 5, 13. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus could have just said, be clean. Okay, you're healed. But he says, I will. It's the word thalo. That's the word for desire. He says, I want to make you clean. So hear that. He not only loves you, but he likes you. The second group, the Pharisees, how's Jesus deconstructing their view? Well, to them, communing with God was earning their place among in God's presence. And anyone who did not look like them or live up to their standards was cut off and removed. And with, with us, what happens is we create a scary social club We create a scary social club where the sinner is not welcome here, and we view our Christianity as a performance, thinking that we earn our place in God's presence, and we create this facade before God and each other that says we're perfect when we're not. We build walls around our lives in the hopes that no one will notice that we're actually broken, and Jesus deconstructs this idea that his love and presence is only for those who are good enough to earn it. And he reconstructs it to them to say, my love is for them. But it's not just for them. It's for you as well. That even when the older brother pouts, Jesus is pursuing him. And so if you would identify as an older brother in this room, I have two questions for you. The first one is, why are you keeping us at arm's length? Why? Why are you not letting us into what's really going on in your hearts? You can come, you can, if I said, name five things wrong wrong with Renewal Church, you could boom, 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 boom. 
But really, honestly, those things really aren't about those things. It's about your heart. There's something happening there. What are you afraid of? Why won't you let us embrace you? The second question is, what group of people are you unwilling to love and embrace because, you, because they don't act like you, talk like you, look like you, or live up to your standards? If 2020 has shown us anything, it has shown us that life is very fragile, that things can change in an instant. And in the midst of that, we are very quick to attack people that we disagree with, right? Usually online, but we're quick to identify groups that don't align with our worldview or our understanding, point a finger at them and scold them for not being more like us, that you can't stand that political party, Democrat or Republican. They don't deserve to be embraced. And here's the reality. We can stand in the truth of the scriptures without sacrificing our kindness, the kindness that Christ embraced us with. We can stand for what we believe, and what we believe is that the scriptures are true. And we can stand in that and not ostracize and exclude because they don't immediately agree with us. Jesus embraced the sinner without becoming one. We can too. Three, at renewal, we should be excellent. If we're excellent in anything, we should be excellent at celebrating the work of God. The people of God celebrate the work of God. Isn't that the theme of this text? It's a theme of celebration. They sing, they dance, they eat because God's at work. And he's at work here. He's not done with us. It is much easier to tear down than it is to build up. So let's be a people that their habit is encouragement. Their habit is speaking to the things that God is doing. The people, the things that he's accomplishing, the vision that he has for Renewal Church, the the ways in which he's working in your life that you would build before you would tear down. And so my encouragement to you is practice celebrating one another. Be excellent at it. That is the theme of this passage. In every moment, there is celebration. With the return of a lost son, with the finding of coin, with the return of the sheep, every moment is celebration. Are you good at that? Or are we just good at tearing one another down? Let's practice celebrating God, giving glory to him, and celebrating the work that God is doing in each other. (laughs) 